Good morning, everybody. We are continuing our series in the book of Luke today. Ushers, they have Bibles. If you need one today, they'll be walking the aisles. We'll be on page 966 of that church Bible. If you're not sure who I am, my name is Nicholas Todd, and I serve at LEFC on the pastoral team. Luke 7, 36 through 50 is our text today. That's Luke 7, 36 through 50. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a, sin, a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them would love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came to, into your house and you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. paraphrase Pastor Tony in regards to this series, it isn't just the words of Jesus. It's the words of Jesus with how they were said, with how they were action in his life, with how they sunk into the heads and the souls of those who were listening that gave humankind, all of us, this uncanny understanding of what God has designed us to be in completeness. Direct quote from Pastor Tony, Christ is our template. If we consider Christ as for us, as our teacher, our coach, our ally, our shepherd, I think we might get a new concept of the kind of relationship we can have with him. Our text today, Luke 7, 36 through 50, is a beautifully subversive moment of grace and mercy. Can you, subversive and grace and mercy, that's what we get with Jesus. At the end of the text, verse 49, what did the other guests say among themselves? Who is this who even forgives sins? I love that question. Who is this? The testimony of people in the book of Luke about Jesus claims all five Greek words that can be translated 
amazed. There are only five of them, and all of them are in the book of Luke. We have translated these words to be amazed, marvel, wonder, astonished, astounded, spellbound, amazement. People were in awe of Jesus. Luke chapter 5, verse 26 ends with this. We have seen incredible things today. And that's what the book of Luke is. It's a gospel of amazement. As you read the text today, as you read in the weeks to come, look for that. That question still stands, though. Who is this who even forgives sins? Who is this? And I believe every person on this planet needs to answer that question at some point in their life. I challenge you to do the same. Today, we get to explore this specific text. I hope you are as blessed by the text as I have been. Now, I have heard this section of Scripture so many times, I I really can't put a number of times to it. I have no explicit memories of hearing someone teach on it. But because of similar pieces of Scripture, it it kind of becomes just a part of who I think Jesus is. It helps me in my understanding of how Jesus works. But then in further reflection, I realized that's not really true. That just makes me sound kind of good. I find I can easily slip in a couple places as I reflect on this specific text. I don't often see Jesus, but I hear what at some point I might call zingers. I replace Jesus with myself as if I'm in the room, and it's like, boom, I just handled that Pharisee. That's how I would do it, just like Jesus. I like the excitement of the back and forth. I like the honor game that is played in much of the gospel. It's a bit like a, a, com, a competition. It, it is a competition. But rarely in my first reading do I see Jesus as an ally to those in the story. As if he is for the people, all the people in the story. I've said it before, and I encourage you all to do the same. Read a text or book more than once in your scriptural journey. After three times, you're just familiar with it. Just familiar with it. You're not an expert at all. You're just finally able to grasp the things you're seeing. Now, by the third time for me with this specific text, I began to see what I put on the text, meaning it, it wasn't there. I could better understand my own cultural lens that sits between me and my understanding of scripture. So today, as we go through sections of the scripture, I want to point something out to you guys. I feel like it's a trick. It'll be your third time today. I want to encourage you to be in the text through the week, especially today. Pray with me as we continue. Father in heaven, thank you for your scripture. Thank you for how it continues to just poke into my life. Thank you for what it's become in my life. And thank you for the path as well, for moving from someone who makes fun of people who tear up at Scripture to someone who has to actively control the tears. What an incredible gift you have given us. Lord, I ask you to speak through me today. Thank you for what I have learned, Lord. And pray for everyone in this room that even now, in this prayer, you're removing the callousness, you're removing the things that would prevent us from hearing what is the truth. 
Holy Spirit, come. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So we're going to begin in verse 36. That's Luke 7, 36 is where we're going to start. And I'll read that out to you. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Stop. We got a lot right there already. This opening moment gives us most of what is needed to set the scene. So question for you all, who are the characters in these first few verses? I'll read it again. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So from this, we know that a Pharisee is there, and we know that Jesus is there. Where is there? The home of the Pharisee. It's a Pharisee's home, someone's home. And on the surface, why are they getting together? To have dinner. I know it's so simple. It's so simple. It's a dinner party. You can expect also that the friends of the Pharisee are there. Now, before it gets more complicated with more people, I want to talk about the Pharisees. When I say the word Pharisee, what's your gut response? Keep it to yourself. (laughs) That is rhetorical. Think of a couple words. Whisper them to the person next to you if you feel like it's safe. What happens when you hear something about this group? When the Pharisees enter the scene, when they show up in Scripture, what do you think? Now, I'm still on a journey of understanding, but I have moved more away from the us versus them idea, the Jesus versus them idea. And the Gospel of Luke alone gives the reader a different picture of the Pharisees than the always angry caricature. Listen to some of these notes. Jesus shares a meal with the Pharisees in this text in Luke 7 by invitation. It happens again, Luke 11, invitation is extended, Jesus goes. And Luke 14, there's a meal, but there's no record of invitation, but that doesn't mean it happens or it didn't happen. Jesus shared a mealtime with the Pharisees, and I think this is significant. Don't replace the word Pharisee with sinner. Don't do that. At a dinner party at my house, the dinner may last three to five hours. We don't even do anything special. We talk in the kitchen, we move to the dining room, and then just stay in the dining room for hours upon hours. I I don't even like transitioning from dining room table to the living room where the comfortable seats are because I feel like it kills the conversation. I keep it in one room. Now, we might get up for seconds or dessert or for drinks or to get coffee, but it stays in one room the whole time. For us, it's a great time to show some hospitality. I have worked at a number of food service establishments in my life, and there's something I have observed. People are happy to receive food and beverages. (laughs) Almost always. I'm trying to give some margin here just in case. Now, in your own home, it becomes a party. You cook your own style. You take their coats. You remind the children to wash their hands, and you get to serve them. You honor them as guests. And they honor you by accepting the invitation. Jesus honored the Pharisees by accepting invitations by them. 
In the four Gospels, it is only in Luke that the Pharisees warn Jesus about Herod's plan to kill him. They warned him, Jesus, heads up, watch out, someone's planning to kill you. Does that sound like an enemy to you? Not off the bat. Next, the Pharisees laid stress on the unwritten law. This would be tradition associated with the written law. They wanted to make the Jewish faith real. So when the question would come up, what does it mean to be Jewish? They wanted to answer that. They wanted to show people what it meant to be Jewish. And all this, I'm trying to say that the Pharisees were credible people. We too quickly discount them to be something else. So as you read scripture and see Jesus interact with them, recognize that Jesus was interacting with them. They were religious people who took their faith very seriously, wanted it to not be high and lofty, but real and actionable. As you continue to read the book of Luke, see that Luke is kind to the Pharisees, kinder than any other gospel writer. So Jesus accepts a dinner invitation from a man that belongs to a group of people that want to make their faith real. The other people in the room, whether Pharisee or not, probably have those same convictions. It's about to get more complicated. I'm in verse 37. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Now, just like we did with the Pharisees, just like we did with the Pharisees, I want you to think about your gut reaction to this unnamed woman, to yourself and to the person next to you if you trust them. Tell them what words come to mind. This is where things got messy for me. Prostitute was one of the words. In my study of this text, though, I don't see it. All I got was that she lived a sinful life. Yes, she was a woman. She was a sinner. Let's go to the Greek, shall we? Now, I I am not an expert in Greek, but I do love to use Bible Hub. Biblehub.com, it's a place where I go to see Greek and English next to each other. It's where I start where I'm wondering, where else might this word be used in Scripture? How might the other references that use this exact word help me understand the meaning of the word better? It's, It's a free service. I use it regularly. So, does looking up this sinful life, this sinner word, Give me any more clarity on her sexual ethics. Survey says, no, it doesn't. The word is used to describe men and women. In the Gospels, the word is used for her in Luke 7, in John 9, when a healed blind man was brought to the Pharisees. And as the Pharisees were discussing this man's life, this word was used. In Luke 5, when Peter the apostle was in total awe of Jesus, he fell to his knees and said, I'm a sinful man. Same word. Are there any Apostle Paul fans out there? Paul, in the book of Romans, uses this word. Nothing related to sexual ethics. 
wherever it came from in my life, wherever it came from in my education and religious upbringing, I'm on a journey now that changes who was in that room. Who was this unnamed woman? I think it is important for her to be only what she is and not what she isn't. Oh, bonus points this week. In our sermon discussion guide that is available, I included references to four gospel accounts of a woman entering a room and anointing Jesus. Luke 7 is one of those. I challenge you to read through those four accounts listed in the sermon discussion guide and ask yourself, are they the same or different? I don't think this debate impacts our salvation in Christ at all. But there is a place for controversy. If you get the chance to read through them and you come to a conclusion, email me. I'd love to hear that conclusion. But what do we do about the woman in Luke 7? We know that she was a sinner. We know that she entered the house of a Pharisee because she heard that Jesus was going to be there. She was overcome with something to the point that she was crying enough to wet the feet of them. I had this memory of when my family was in China, my oldest son may have been three or four, and, and we were getting sick in a cab ride and trying to be the adult. Um, as he's starting to, to heave j- just a little bit, um, I thought, I don't want to get the taxi dirty. I don't have a plastic bag. What am I supposed to do? And so with so much awareness of what my body was doing, I took my hands and made a cup and put my hands right, right underneath now, is that your natural response to vomit? <laughs> Think about any bodily fluid. Tears falling on you. Unless you are actually consoling the person against your shoulder, the, the likelihood is you see something dripping on you, you, you recoil. We don't see it. We don't see it. Her tears hit his feet and she dried the feet with her hair. We get to verse 39 and 40, and we hear the response of this host, this Pharisee. When the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who was touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Let's travel back a little bit to what I said about the Pharisees. Their convictions were that the written law, in combination with tradition, would be the map for living according to God's desires. They wanted to make the Jewish faith real. But in order to include tradition, they also had to start with the written. Another way to think about this, Simon the Pharisee, someone who knew Scripture better than you or I could ever hope to know, misses the point. The person we might expect to miss the point, the unnamed sinful woman, fully comprehends her sin and her need for Jesus. This expert on the law was missing it. So what does Jesus do? Hear it and read it with gentleness, not anger, in verse 40. Simon, I have something to tell you an invitation. And then hear it and read it with humility, Simon's response, as if Jesus is not against this Pharisee, 
but so deeply hoping to invite him in. Tell me, teacher. I want to know more. The life group I participate in consists of five families. We meet just about every other week. And in this group of five families, we have 14 kids running around. A few months ago, we started to split the kids up into two groups, a younger group and an older group. With the older group of kids, we've been reading a book called Tales of the Kingdom. Each time we gather, we read a section of it, and often it's followed up with a couple reflection questions that start with lower-order thinking skills, like remembering, and moves into higher-order thinking skills, like evaluating and creating. As a, as a former as a former university lecturer and educator, I'm geeking out right now because like, this, is, this is the beautiful stuff that happens in a classroom. It's nerdy teacher talk, but these are the goals we have for our children, right? These are the goals we have for ourselves as adults, to not just remember, but to think beyond the surface. I'm digressing in my digression. I'll bring it back. So, I get to read the tales of the kingdom story each time we meet. Now, in her genius, it was my wife's idea to even read tales of the kingdom. She crafts the reflection questions and does the big work while I get to be the reader and put some emotion, some drama to the dialogue. And I love to read the story. As the reader who has read the story so many times, I still get shaken up and have to control myself as I'm reading and seeing what's happening in the lives of the people. It isn't just the children who listen. Adults are in the room. Since November, some of the adults of the adults have asked with this gleeful anticipation if the story will be read that night. <laughs> Stories aren't just for kids. And Jesus knows this about humankind. And even more specifically, about the culture he lived in. Let's talk about that culture. Jesus lived in a Jewish culture. This culture held a strong oral tradition. This means home, church, school were designed around this idea of memorization and recall. Prayers, psalms, proverbs passed on from one generation to another through oral communication. Jesus was literate. We know that in one way because he opened the scroll in Luke 4, found the spot, found the spot, in the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, read it out and ultimately drops the mic when he says, Scripture is fulfilled in your presence today. That actually brings me to a sub-point. You know who literally drops microphones? People who have never had to buy one. So as a point of professional courtesy, as dramatic as it might be, never, never drop the mic. Jesus. Back to Jesus. So he was literate, just as we are, but he still knew that oral tradition, that storytelling, was what made an impact on his Jewish cultures, on his Jewish culture. But why do stories make an impact? Do you have any favorite stories? Stories break down resistance. It enters the unconscious quickly and causes the listener to fall in the craziest trap ever, a trap of truth. A story gets us thinking about something we may not want to think about. Stories force us to look at life in new ways. And this is, I had to think about this one for a while. They outwit our reasoned defenses. 
Tell me, teacher. And in two verses, Jesus tells the most dazzling parable. Verse 41. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which one of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Consider the story, both in fact. We have Jesus, Simon the Pharisee, and the repentant woman. And then we have the parable within the story. Two stories there. What place do you put yourself in this story? As you consider the banquet table that was set, where are you sitting? Which character are you? Given the choice of Jesus, a Pharisee, and what we most often call a prostitute, who are you going to pick? And to make it really clear, you're not Jesus. <laughs> That's why it's so important to see the characters for who they are. Are Few of us, some of us might, but few of us are going to identify as this thing we put on the woman. Few of us will identify as the prostitute. Our culture is so sexually charged, and because church righteous honor is so deeply connected to our sexual ethics, we might tiptoe around topics that should be safe, but we aren't sure, so we live in this quiet mystery. My hope is to neutralize some of that narrative and reconstruct the two choices we have based on Scripture for today. An unnamed woman. Someone who has observed the way of Jesus, recognizes a gap in their own life, and desires to reclaim a dignity that they know at a soul level is theirs but they have never experienced it. We're a Pharisee. Someone working hard, maybe too hard, that has placed themselves in a box so deep with rules and tradition that they can't hear or see the actual truth anymore. Their motives might seem good, but they alienate those that desire so deeply to meet the Christ. Jewish culture allowed an outer ring of observers in rabbinic conversation and debate, meaning as rabbis and teachers would get together to discuss the scriptures in the inmost circle, there were layers of observers, um, forgive me, as they discussed in the inmost circle on the, in the outer side, there were layers of observers that could listen in and learn from the conversation. Some researchers have extended this to religious leaders in homes as well, meaning this dinner party had the potential to have multiple concentric circles of listeners. 
This Jewish custom is what makes me draw a conclusion that this unnamed woman was also Jewish. She entered this space to listen in. It also means she was part of that same oral culture that the Pharisee was a member of, where stories, psalms, and proverbs, proverbs have been passed down by word of mouth for centuries. Two people who had heard the psalms all their lives had many of them memorized so that they too could pass them along. It was the unnamed woman who put it together first. It's one thing to know the Psalms, but it's another to know the shepherd of them. Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. I so wish I knew what happened with Simon the Pharisee. I wish I could say that Simon the Pharisee became a follower of Jesus, that he accepted the grace and mercy Jesus offered. I don't know, though. What about you? Have you heard his tender voice? Have you heard that Jesus is for you? That he's your ally, your teacher, your coach, your savior? Let's continue our worship. If you have lived your life putting grace and mercy in a box, putting Jesus in a box that he is against you, I want to tell you there, there's myself here, there are people who will be under the cross that would pray with you to say that this grace and mercy is extended to you. Go forth into this world as people reborn. Live with generosity, not greed. Celebrate life, not death. And revel in the abundant grace and mercy that is offered us. May you hear the tender voice of the Savior and may your soul find rest. Go in peace. We'll continue our series next week.